You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. Today, film discussion meister Andrew joins me to talk about 1941's Dumbo and the 1996 film Beautiful Girls. This is an episode about movies that make us cry. Would you say that you don't mind these types of movies? Do you seek them out ever? I don't intentionally seek them out necessarily, but it won't scare me away from something if I hear that it makes someone cry. And it doesn't become like a badge of honor if I don't cry, or if I do, it's just I kind of let it hit me as it hits me. When it does hit you, what sort of physical stuff are you experiencing? Is it the eyes? Is it the breathing? It'll be the eyes mainly, but I might do one of those quick breaths, like, the best way I could, you know, the, you know, like, something like that, like, my breathing might change, but it's very, very quick. It's kind of like a one-and-done thing, because once that's done, then the, the eyes get watery, and then I'm like, okay, it's happening. I find the, the first sign is my face will start to feel hot, and then I know something's about to happen. <laughs> gotcha. Nah, it kind of hits me very quickly. For this particular show... I had some rules because there are a lot of movies that are just naturally going to make people upset, and it's a little bit of the the low-hanging fruit, maybe a POW movie or based on a true story. So this one, I wanted us to do movies that had happy endings, nobody died, and wasn't based on any historical facts. Now, if I didn't have those rules in place, can you think of a movie that affects you deeply? If I'm being very honest, most of the movies that hit me like this are cartoons. They're all animated movies. It's actually much more infrequent for a live action to get me this way. Wow, why do you uh, suppose that is? I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do with the car- with the animated films, I think, because they're, I don't want to say they're more universal necessarily, but it's almost like you can really play up to the emotional side of things with the imagery, I think, more than live action. Because with live action, you have to have the actors sell it, right? Yeah. So if someone makes a weird face or just doesn't quite deliver a line or something in a pivotal moment, then it can take you out of it. But with animated, it's just, you know, they're going to keep redrawing and redrawing and redrawing until they get it right. And so I think it can really just hit you a little bit harder. Like there's limit, there are limitations in live action that aren't in the animated forms. So that's why I think animated just, it hits me a little bit harder. And maybe because it's animated, since it's not real people, there is a, a level of, of a blank canvas for you to just engage with without thinking about if it was a real-life person and a real-life environment. There's like a sweet disconnect there that lets you just experience the emotionality. Yeah, and I think it also allows you to kind of imprint on the character a little bit easier. If I'm watching a movie with, like, I'll say like Bradley Cooper, and he's all sad about something... I don't look anything like Bradley Cooper outside of the fact that I'm white for you listeners at home. 
that's all I have in common. But with a, an animated movie, I mean, of course I'm not a lion, but when Mufasa bites it, that's sad. So yeah, like it's just, there's no, there are no barriers. You can imprint, I think, on animated characters a little bit easier. Bradley Cooper in a live action role. Okay, you can't access it to that extent emotionally, but something like Rocket Raccoon, you could or do more. Honestly, in Guardians 1, when Rocket's talking about his backstory and about how he's being taken apart, like that was rough, dude. That was honestly <laughs> rough. It's one thing to feel it, but it's another to understand what you're seeing is sad. But with Rocket, it's like, oh, damn, you know, that poor animated raccoon. Are there any uh, movies that, sort of Guardians as an example, but can you think of another one that surprised you with giving you the feels? You know, I am a sucker for a few different types of things. For instance, and I think this will lead into my my pick for this episode, essentially, but as cliche or as lame as it might sound, in a movie when two people who love each other, whether it's romantic or, you know, family or whatever, when there are physical obstacles in one way or another keeping them apart, and they're trying desperately, just like all they want is to be together, that can get me a little bit. So like at the end of Rocky, although it's, you know, the most lampooned scenes in a film, you know, when he's yelling Adrian and she's going up to the ring, like that's like, oh, go over Adrian, get to Rocky. Other than that, also, like maybe in a superhero movie when like the hero does like the super sacrifice to save a lot of lives or just one, like that can get me because it's like, you know, go man, go. It's stuff like that. Like, so the superhero movies can have those moments for me when they're um, living up to their ideals or inspirational, I guess is the best way to put it. I didn't think too much of Captain America, the first Avenger, but that scene where he jumps on top of that grenade, that choked me up. <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah. It's stuff like that. That'll get me too. just, you know, they're just, it's people being heroes, I guess is the best way to put it. Well, and it's a it's a character defining moment with such purity that it just it just overwhelmed me. You know what's kind of a weird one for me, speaking of heroic tears, is and this might go back to our Bond podcast, but in View to a Kill, when he's carrying Stacy Sutton down the ladder, like he's a fireman. I don't know why, but that it's the music and the the scenery that gets me. It's just that I think that scene was worth the whole lackluster film it wasn't watching christopher walken maniacally laugh while he blew away a bunch of people with a machine gun i forgot about that those are tears of a different kind though (laughs) in my history of movies that i love to cry for with you it's the heroic moments and those definitely get me too but i think my favorite subgenre of emotional movies are the ones where the characters are coming back from the bottom or trying to enrich themselves in some in some difficult way like movies where addicts are trying to quit that sort of stuff always gets me because because you can't help but want these people to do better in their lives so something well requiem for a dream they don't really try to get better so okay so that's off the table then well, but you do see them cope with the tragedy of the fact they can't get out of it. So that that definitely has some emotional moments. 
I mainly felt worse for the the um, was it Jared Leto's mom in that movie? Yeah, yeah. I felt worse for her just because she kind of accidentally became. I don't want to say accident. It's. I mean, that's a touchy subject, right? Addiction. But um, I felt worse for her because of the the electroshock at the end. That was, that was rough. Leto losing his arm. That I mean, that wasn't. That's no cakewalk either. And then I think. We all know what happened to Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really not funny. Uh, oh, man. Well, so that's the perfect segue into talking about your pick. I guess it is. Dumbo, 1941. Give us a summary of it and why you picked it. Well, it's the classic, classic Disney film about the essentially the elephant that could and was ridiculed for his gigantic ears and was put to work in the circus in kind of an embarrassing clown way. I mean, they painted the poor guy, wasn't really treated well, separated from his mother, gets drunk one night and then ends up in a tree and then he starts flying because his uh, ringmaster mouse friend is like, hey dude, there's only one way he could have gotten up here and then he starts flying around and Everything turns around. It does have its happy ending where he becomes the star of the circus and he's reunited with his mother at the end of it all. That was a very good summary. Mind you, it is not a very long movie, so of course you don't need a long summary to to get all the bits. Yeah, because it's like, was it even under 80 minutes? Because it might have been that short. It was. I think it was just over an hour. If you had to give a broader summary of the movie, how would you do that? <laughs> I guess my big question to you is, what do you mean by broader? Well, I, I was kind of getting that with your, with your original summary that you really give just about all the movie up. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I, I essentially gave away the movie so you guys don't have to watch. It's classic Disney in the sense where it's beautifully animated and just a very 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 simple story quite honestly i mean i feel like i could go into some more detail but i also think it's unnecessary um i mean you know dumbo gets drunk and it's a whole sequence but it's kind of like it's just there to be silly and you know look at how great our animation is oh that was one of the standout sequences for me i love that and being a film that's like 80 years old for sequences like the pink elephants that might be a little long if it was done today back in the old disney movies man this whole movie there there's just for lack of a better term they're just gags almost every couple seconds so it doesn't feel like any of it's hot air they pack a lot within within the short time that they give you for that movie the story moves at a great pace the visuals are just nothing's unintentional and which is a really nice change of pace also if you want to watch a movie which is just about like near perfect pacing like when they're drunk and the mouse is floating up on the bubbles and each one pops and every time he comes back up into frame on another bubble they are just milking every good gag they can think of. Mm -hmm. And then once that runs out, they don't overstay their welcome. They don't repeat anything. They go, okay, 
you know, the writers probably came up with 10 things, they did all 10, and then once they ran out of ideas, like, okay, let's move on to the next part of this bit, because, you know, we, we blew our wad on this. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, there's no, yeah, exactly, they don't beat anything to death. It's just get in, get out, leave them wanting more, which is always nice. And the, the, the creativity behind all of it, a little moment that was so small, but it made me chuckle was when they're showing all the animals sleeping with their children and you go into the hyena pen and the hyenas are laughing in their sleep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that was that was nice. That was just such a specific throwaway moment. And it took it. Your brain kind of has to catch up for a split second where you're like, why are they laughing? And then you realize, oh, oh, and then it becomes funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because there is really brief how you see all these animals. It's just bam, 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 and the hyena's chuckling, and then bam. And so, yeah, you're, you're laughing into the next animals. It's, it's kind of nice. The first half of the movie is really where all the feels hit you, because he gets delivered to his mom. And his mom is just immediately in love with him. And you're, you, and this is the thing with animated films is you can see it. Her expressions are perfect. This elephant is emoting in a way that humans almost physically can't because you can have those super big smiles or the eyes can take shapes that human eyes just can't do. You know, the Dumbo's mom just, and she never speaks, which is kind of nice because I think it adds... Oddly enough, her not being able to speak kind of adds more character, I think, to her. She's just the silent, strong mother type. Do you think her being silent was just for the drama, or was it also in movie, as in she's a mute? I didn't pick up on that. Because she stays separated from the other elephants, and you kind of wonder why. And Dumbo doesn't say anything, so maybe that's a trait that got passed down. You know, I never really thought of it. I always kind of figured that, you know, she was... I didn't think that she would be separated because she was mute at all. I, I guess I always just figured that she was separated because maybe she just had a different elephant task or something like that. Yeah, I never thought that it would be like um, a mute thing. I just kind of figured that they kept her quiet because it wasn't necessary, you know, with her getting Dumbo for the first time, it's just all in the face, the music hits in the right ways. I don't know, I think with certain things, words can cheapen the scene, I guess, and kind of the, the power of it, because it gets to a point where it might feel like it's being over-explained. It made me root for those guys even more, thinking that perhaps not only did Dumbo have giant ears, but also suffered from some mute affliction. I definitely would, yeah, because it's more odds stacked against him. When was the first time you saw the movie? I mean, it would have been probably when I was a real, real, real little kid, to the point where when I finally did rewatch it as an adult, it was like a whole new movie for me. Because it was just one of those movies I never, I don't remember rewatching it a lot as a kid. When I was, when I was little, if I would watch a Disney movie, it was Robin Hood. And so, or like Homeward Bound, you know, stuff like that. Same with other classics like Snow White or Pinocchio. Like those would be movies where if I were to rewatch them now, it would be almost a new film. So what would you say is the climax of the movie? The climax of the movie, I think for me, was 
the scene where oh man you see that's a tough one because there are two scenes that just kind of almost equally brought me to pieces gun to my head i would say his mom rocking him to sleep behind her essentially in her from her prison that was that was rough (laughs) that was rough that was that was rough to watch when she rocked him to sleep and just the music and there's there are tears from oh god it's it's just a whole you need a whole box of, of tissues for it it's it was a rough watch for sure They are so deft in their use of music because when he visits her in the madhouse there, I was I was feeling something and then I tipped over the edge when the music started because it just fit in so perfectly with the moment and you just understood what they were feeling and the music didn't intrude on it, it enhanced it and it just pushed me over the edge. Yeah, it's... I think... Music in a movie is one of those things that I think everyone does have an appreciation for it, but it's one of those things where you definitely know like there are films that use it better than others, and old school Disney movies just knew how to work music into their films. And this was just a perfect example of, yeah, it's the music, it's the imagery with the music that just sets you off, and it's, it, was, it was great. It's pretty rare when I get emotional in a quieter scene. I think the only one I can think of is La La Land. It wasn't like a musical cue. That's one I haven't seen, and this one I had never seen until we did this episode. How did you handle it? Well, I was, I was a little um, apprehensive, just because some of those earlier Disney movies can get a little too saccharine, mm-hmm. and I can't quite access it the way I might have when I was a child. Mm-hmm. But this one I was I was curious about. It struck me that this is part of a series of Disney movies. Because they use music so much and so well, it's an interesting hybrid. It, it's not quite a musical, but it has a lot of music. Mm-hmm. And I don't really get into musicals. But something like this is that happy middle ground where some of the characters are singing, but for some reason I accept it, and I got into it. You don't need to watch something that's an hour and a half to two hours long to feel anything. It's just it gets you immediately, and you're out, you know, shortly after an hour with this movie, and it still, it packs much more of an emotional wallop than other films that, you know, can be more than twice as long it's not just the craftsmanship in terms of the artistry the actual artistry of the visual storytelling but also just the tightness of the scripts that they were writing and the composers just doing this brilliant job with like hey it's a movie about an elephant that learns to fly there's a scene where he's separated from his mom what you got for me and it's perfect have you seen the remake the recent one with michael keaton No, I did not. I didn't want to because it didn't look appealing to me. And also the biggest turnoff for me about that was, and I'm not trying to start controversy, it was a Tim Burton film. I didn't want to watch it. Tim Burton is one of those directors that is 
very hit or miss for me. And I feel like with a Dumbo remake, him at the helm, I, I just thought like, eh, that's kind of doomed from the start. I didn't want to see gothic, creepy Dumbo. Why would you say that? Just because it's Tim Burton and he does that in everything for like the last 20 years? Exactly. It's, it's exactly that. I guess when he adapts children's stuff to make it his own, I don't quite like it. Well, Burton right now has got two big problems. Either he's remaking classics, which already puts you as an underdog, or because he's got such a narrow bandwidth now with his goth stuff, that that is only going to enhance certain types of stories, such as Sleepy Hollow, Sweeney Todd, and then things like Dumbo, like you mentioned before. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't work. Yeah, I don't really remember the last time I saw a Tim Burton movie and I thought, this was an, an absolutely amazing film. I, I bring up the, the remake because I haven't seen it either, but I'm curious if, because it got turned into live action, as has been the trend lately, when Dumbo's flying toward the end, because I imagine they just followed the story pretty much exactly, how that plays in live action versus seeing a cartoon elephant flying around. Yeah, that's and that's another thing, because you're going to have human actors reacting to, you know, nothing, essentially, and they're just going to CGI that elephant in there. That's where kind of the believability issues come in. Nothing beats the classics. Uh, any final thoughts on the original Dumbo from 1941? I think Dumbo's a, a great watch if you're in the mood to cry. It's an almost guarantee. I won't say it is. And I won't say, oh, you're heartless if you don't cry, but it's, it's so close. I'm going to say that if you don't at least get a little choked up at least one point during that movie, then maybe you should get tested for Asperger's. It's, it is intense. It's definitely, you may be a little bit of a sociopath, but it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that you're not going to enjoy it on the level that other people can, which is it makes us miserable, and that's why we enjoy it. I would add that with movies, especially animated movies now, seeming to be just so commercial and lacking heart, if you want to watch some animated stuff that is well-crafted and has the emotions to it, uh, Dumbo's definitely a good choice. A lot of those old Disney movies, I think, are great. They're great picks, you know, they're the classics for a reason. I mean, they were made at the time when it wasn't as commercial as all that. It was those sort of expensive movies to make back then, so it was for the artistry and the craft. And I think that Dumbo really shows it. Moving on to movie number two, Beautiful Girls, 1996, directed by Ted Deming. My summary of it would be that uh, a musician in a rut returns home to see some old friends leading up to their high school reunion. Uh, mainly it's a, it's a bunch of people nearing 30 dealing with relationships and coming to terms with their own growth and maturity. Watching it this time around, I, I, I watch it every couple of years I'd say, and these movies where I'm older than those characters are always strikes me as odd. <laughs> uh, i i didn't think about that before but you're absolutely right like i i am older than those guys because i watched this back when 
terrestrial television was a big thing, and it used to run on Comedy Central. And I, I watched it growing up and, and really got into it, even though it was all these adult characters. Definitely to see it now being older than them just really shows the passage of time. Yeah. Oh, damn. That's 25 years ago that movie came out. Oh, damn. Yeah. That's, well, that's rough. Well, if you want to get a good sense of time, just look at Natalie Portman in that movie. Yeah. She was like 14, 15. Yeah. Well, uh, I have my thoughts on that, too. (laughs) We will continue with your synopsis. Yeah, there's some controversy around that, and we will get to it. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a, a good companion piece to Dumbo in that I hadn't seen Dumbo You had never seen Beautiful Girls. Mm -mm. So just from your first viewing of it, what can you say about it? I think it's interesting that you said it played on Comedy Central because it's definitely not a straight comedy. It's it's actually not... I don't want to say it's not funny, but it's not... I wouldn't say it's Comedy Central funny, necessarily, because it's it's a pretty hard, I'll say, dramedy with the emphasis on the drama part of it. Like, Forrest Gump is a dramedy, but that movie is hysterical when it is funny. With Beautiful Girls, it's it's a bummer in an existential sense. It's not like Dumbo, where it's the visuals and the music, and it's just emotional response to what you're seeing and hearing. It's an existential thing. You're kind of like, oh, I can relate to that. Oh, I felt that way before. Or maybe I'm at this point in my life, and da-da-da-da-da-da. It was an interesting watch, definitely, having seen it for the first time. There are so many storylines playing out through this thing. You got the main, ostensibly the main character, Willie, who is the struggling musician, wonders if he should get real with his long-term girlfriend, if he should get a real job as a salesman and give up playing uh, piano. And you have Matt Dillon playing Birdman, who I I guess was a jock in high school. And he's having an affair with a married woman who used to be his high school girlfriend. Paul, played by Michael Rappaport, who has just lost his girl. And he's making some really last-ditch attempts to salvage the relationship. Even though he, he loves to play up the angle that, oh, you know women aren't really all that and he's he's kind of the token misogynist of these type of movies and might i add he kind of plays almost the same character in every movie he's in he's got a certain uh wheelhouse and he does it well he plays the red-headed douche friend now out of all these characters which one did you identify with or enjoy watching their story the most in terms of identify with, I guess I would go with Willie the most just because of my school background where, I mean, for now, I guess, you know, dear audience, my, my real job is I, I'm working, I have an office job. And so, I, but I studied originally audio recording because I wanted to be a music studio guy. I wanted to be an engineer or record producer or something like, well, I never really wanted to be a producer. I wanted to just be the engineer and just set up all the equipment and the microphones and just let the artists do their thing just watching artists create 
So I related to him the most because of his musical background, even though his was more performance. And then the idea of like, oh, I got to get real and get another job because that's how I ended up getting an office job was like, oh, I'm not getting these studio jobs and I can't just sit on my hands. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I'm working an office job and it's, you know, it's comfortable. It's not what I wanted to do in life. I don't hate it, which is great. The people are good. Um, but that's, that's, that's a different podcast entirely. (laughs) (laughs) I'd relate to him the most in terms of the hitting that crossroads because I have been there and had to make a decision on, do I keep doing what I'm doing or make that change that you might not want to make? And it's that, that universal crossroads of maturity and saying, okay, I had this, I had slash have this dream, but it's the real world I'm dealing with. So like uh, Willie's conflict in the movie, a part of me doesn't want him to get that sales job, but I also understand why he's thinking about doing it. And, and maybe some of the other characters that are just saying, oh, no, you shouldn't do it, Willie. You got to be a musician. That may be they're wrong in that moment because Willie's trying to, you know, help his life out. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a weird one. You want to root for the guy, but especially watching it now, I think at our age, we do know that, you know, if he's living in New York City and, you know, he admittedly, he admits he doesn't get a lot of piano gigs and they don't play too well. You know, it is one of those things where it's just, there is a time where it it is get real. And I, I read that beginning scene a little differently than you did where he's pulling out all the singles for the bus ticket it could definitely speak to him being not incredibly wealthy but i also found it to be a a good show don't tell character moment of like if you were so dense that you didn't get he was a musician playing at bars when he pulls out a bunch of singles and that's his tip money you totally understand a bit about his life I've never passed my own tip jar around, but I've been in a band where a tip jar has gone around, so I've, I've seen it. I identified, based on the screen time, we'll say the, the second lead would be Matt Dillon, the Birdman. I identified with him just because his arc spoke to me in the way that he's thinking too much about past glory, and I've had moments where things are really good, and then they're not so great. And when they're not so great, you think, oh my god, I already peaked. It's never going to be as good as it was. But kind of like him, things go up and down, and, and it doesn't all have to be in the past. The present and the future, they're, you know, they're all there waiting to, waiting to be done, you know? Yeah, I mean, def- yeah, definitely. I don't know. I guess with... You know, with characters like that, I have a little bit of a harder time relating to, I guess, the, the past glory type characters. I've never really, I've never really related to them. I mean, is there any particular reason that you do? Like, did you have a really good, I mean, not to make it about, like, did you have a really good high school or college experience where just like life was a whiz bang of a time? Or was it just like other things maybe that make you relate to a character like that a little bit more? The way I access it isn't anything related to school, and I definitely wasn't a jock. 
Uh, professionally, I've had whiz bang eras, and it makes me identify with Birdman that you're thinking about this bygone time and and his girlfriend Sharon in the movie. She she rather callously makes the point that I can't give you a time that's totally gone and inaccessible. You can't go back to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which she's right to point that out because he is being a dick to her. And I just, I, I access that completely, identify with it. I look back at it. I look back on my high school time as a good time. You know, I had good friends and a lot of fun. I mean, I wasn't cock of the walk. And so I've always seen that as just, it is in the past. I remember it for what it was. It, it was a good time with some pretty crappy moments. I guess I've never looked back at it and thought, man, I wish I was that person again. That speaks to the, the way this movie, with its multitude of characters, and they do a great job of, of giving all of them something to do and, and giving them some development, that you can have a lot of different life experiences and, and you can find one of the characters to get into because of it. Yeah, they definitely do give you variety. On one hand, though, like I do think that their struggles are pretty universal, but they're also... They are also very male-centric. They do have the female characters with their struggles, but they're largely summed up by Rosie O'Donnell, who sums it up well. I mean, like her character's pretty great, and she's funny, but I feel like a lot of the, the female point of view in the movie is, I'll say, kicked to the curb. Sure, in as much as... It focuses on that group of friends, and movies have to have a, a point of view, or else it, it gets too watered down and, and there's no focus on anything. To follow your lead, would you say there are any female characters that felt too underrepresented, even for a movie about a group of guys? I think that Sharon was probably... The one who should have had a little bit more screen time. Because she's the one who was kind of... She was the lady who was dumped on the most, right? Yeah. Um, what was her name? Darian? She she didn't need more screen time. She was fine. It was kind of satisfying to see her get dumped on at the high school reunion. Rosie O'Donnell was perfect where she was. I guess with Uma Thurman, she was just kind of there for these guys to work out their crises at her so that was a little i don't want to say weird but it was just kind of she didn't have much of a personality outside of just kind of being there she was just the hot cousin but she was also um, a strong character so that it doesn't feel totally one-sided and completely male because yeah they they just about all hit on her and she rebuffs all of them as she should have. So it's not that she was, it's not that she was a bad character. I, at the end of the day, I think I wanted to know a little bit more about where she came from and who she was other than just kind of, at times, a plot device. Almost like um, fairy godmother characters where she just kind of popped in and solved people's problems in her own way and bounced out. Yeah, the, the muse. Yeah, uh, thank you, thank you, the muse. Uh, I didn't have a problem with her performance, but if I could excise a character, I would probably get rid of her 
And yeah, give more screen time to Mira Sorvino as Sharon. And maybe even Darian, because I'd like to see what it is about, just some more details about her home life. And if Stephen, her husband, even lets on that he knows that they're screwing around on him, or, or what the whole deal is with that. I mean, you are right about that. She could have had a little bit more. But I guess with her point, because she was just kind of the other woman, she was kind of accomplishing her role as a character by just kind of being there and ruining the party. And she's probably, there's really no villain of this piece, but if we had to point at one, I guess it would be her. Even she doesn't stay a villain the whole movie because at the end, like you mentioned before at the reunion, she gets something of a comeuppance or or a a wake-up call. As far as gut-punch moments that don't make you cry, but I think they do make you feel something, is when she's confronted by that guy that she used to bully in high school. And you see that look on her face after he tells her off and says that she was a snake. Yeah. And she's got that realization on her face, like, wow, I was a bitch. When she could have easily said, nah, nah, screw you, fat guy. You just want to, you know, I won't have sex with you, so you're being a prick. No, she sees it. She acknowledges it. And we're hoping, going on, if, if we saw a sequel, that she would stop cheating on her husband because she realizes she needs to get her act together. So she has an arc. What are some other gut punch moments for you in this movie? Because I was surprised at how many there are. Um, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I didn't have a lot of gut punch moments in this movie. I mean, really, it was one of those movies where it wasn't really any one part that got me. No climax? No, I, I didn't have a climax in this one. What was the closest you came to climaxing? <laughs> Uh, (laughs) um let me think let me think um because i i will be honest with you i literally just watched it today there's nothing wrong with that it is super fresh right now i guess the closest i came would have been matt Dillon in the hospital that was the closest because that's when he he finally broke down and came to terms that like wait a minute you know i'm not who i was and it's fine not to I'm not going to accomplish all these dreams. I think that was the closest for me. Yeah, it, was, it would have been Matt Dillon in the hospital bed. I think that would be my climax. That is totally the climax. If not for the fact that I was re-watching this with a killer headache, that's the only time I've ever watched the movie where I didn't shed a tear at that scene. And it's because I just wasn't feeling very good. <laughs> but all the other times I do... And there's always something poignant for me seeing a physically strong character who breaks down a little bit, that dichotomy, the emotions in this guy who is usually so strong in his presentation. I love it. It is always nice to see those kind of more macho characters acknowledge what they're feeling. You do get the sense from him that he is going to turn a new... I mean, everyone in the movie... At least the way I, when I was watching it, everyone kind of turns over their new leaf or just is going to move forward in a positive direction. And so you do know that he's, he's going to be okay at the end of it. You know, he, you know, he got all his problems essentially beat out of him. He's good now. Once he heals, he's, you know, he better watch out, world. Birdman's back. While it, it does 
tell the story from a majority male viewpoint. I think it stays away from being too one-sided. You mentioned the, the Rosie O'Donnell character, and in that great scene at the convenience store, she's telling them all the things that all the ideals of women and how these guys need to get their heads on straight. And she is rebuking them. And in a way, rebuking most of the narrative because they are in the wrong for a lot of the movie. You can't turn a new leaf unless you're doing the wrong thing for part of it. They do point out for people that that want to hear a bit more of a fair-sided argument, the Mo character, the one guy in the group that has a family, he's a plant manager, he seems on an objective level to have his life together. But when the other characters talk about him, they talk about him like he's a bit of a dumbass and that he's lacking in the drive to excel and and reach for something better than the fact that he's got two kids and a loving wife. Don't believe everything these characters are into. They're wrong. I did like that, that they weren't necessarily supposed to be either rooted for or necessarily even liked, I think. They're likable to a point. Like, you root for them to fix their problems, except, for me, it was except for Paul. But I wanted to see Willie and Birdman do well. But yeah, I mean, you definitely, it doesn't, you're right, the film doesn't make you think they're the best people in the world. That segues nicely into the Willie-Marty relationship. It does, doesn't it? (laughs) It makes me think of British material that, like Ricky Gervais, he is great at doing cringeworthy material. And there is a level of cringe to this movie, which I argue is just adds to the verisimilitude and these characters aren't going to look good 100% of the time. Nobody does in life. But it rides a, a very thin line where Willie, in his desire to work out his issues where he's he's got to grow up and a part of him doesn't want to and then he fixates on the neighbor girl this family that moved in since he was gone he's talking with his friends about how she's just so cool and he wishes he could be a kid again this is a early high school late middle school girl and it is probably the cringiest story in the movie it's definitely hard to watch almost any of their exchanges well no i won't go that far i think originally what i didn't appreciate about natalie portman's character was i felt like oh she's kind of playing that young manic pixie dream girl character again and she's this this very clever crafty sly youth stereotype i'm just kind of like all right you know she's just a nosy kid and the 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 Yeah, it was the fact that he was kind of going along with it and really missing that. And then just the whole idea of, you know, you have Mo who's like, dude, she's 13. (laughs) He's trying to like talk sense into him. It was really weird. It was really, really weird because you want him to fix his problems, but not like that. Well, and when you're at the, the, the frozen lake and everybody's ice skating and then she's interacting with Willie, and she falls into his arms to test him. And that wonderful shot 
with Mo where he's looking at him yeah. and he's freaking out. <laughs> yeah, that was great. It definitely comments on the strangeness of their short relationship. It understands something's weird about it from the narrative standpoint. It doesn't make you try to think that this is normal and we should want them together. It was just, it was very, very strange, especially that she was into it. Like if this was something where maybe she was just kind of, she thought he was like this interesting or funny older guy that she was just kind of talking to, that would be one thing. But the fact that she's, oh yeah, if you just wait five years, I'll be 18 and we're all good. It's like, well, no, like that's, that's not cool. And luckily he comes to his senses and makes that analogy to Winnie the Pooh. Yes, that was the most appropriate thing he could have done considering everything he already did. The most appropriate <laughs> thing he could have done was just kind of answered her questions at first and walked away once it started getting weird. When you look at it as film perspective and just kind of as the character, it definitely does not endear you to Willie at all. I think it, it shows how much he was struggling having a sort of a quarter-life crisis. It's funny that the movie is predicated on him going back for his reunion, but Darian, the cheating wife, is the only one that even makes it to the lobby of the reunion. None of the main characters go to the reunion. As far as subplots go, this will-they-won't-they star-crossed lovers with a 13-year-old, it's it's off-putting, but we do get a nice dramatic piece from Natalie Portman. She acts very well in this. When they're at the frozen lake and Willie is telling her that what they're thinking is totally stupid and isn't going to work, she has a nice little arc in that she starts the movie being very precocious and, oh, she's just so wise for her age based on her witty banter. But then she really does come down to being just a kid and realizing, yeah, you know what? I don't know everything, and I am being childish, thinking that if we just wait five years, we can be together. It's definitely not something for everybody. It's, um, it is a weird plot point in the film that I think is very, I don't want to say is very 90s, but it's not something that I think for younger viewers of the film really might not appreciate it <laughs> just at all because i know that like I, I was when i was watching i'm just thinking oh my gosh it's it's like to catch a predator <laughs> and it never gets any like really weird or creepy or well it's creepy but it never gets i'll say super like physically inappropriate they, they're pretty much keeping a good amount of distance between the two except for the falling into his arms thing and then at the end of the movie he does kiss her on the cheek I'm choosing to believe it was meant to be innocent, like kissing a, a kissing a teenage niece, but um, yeah. As far as subplots go, I think I might have expressed his Peter Panism a different way, but since they did take that route, I think they did it about as about as well as you can if you're going to do that. I think so too. As we round out our discussion about beautiful girls, are there any other points you'd like to make? Although it didn't give me a climax, I would say it's a worthwhile view, especially for people who are kind of in their mid to late 20s or like anywhere from like mid 20s to mid 30s, because I think that's 
those are ages where I think you'll hit those kinds of crossroads for sure. It's a different type of feels movie. Like, you'll relate to someone in there, I think, at one point or another. So it's definitely, if you like films like that, I think Beautiful Girls is going to be up your alley. And there you have it. Two movies to help dig that emotional well out of your soul. Come and fill a ladle with a satisfying helping of tears. Dumbo for the kid in you, and Beautiful Girls for the adult you inevitably became. Where it began. Remember, there's nothing wrong with climaxing once in a while to keep you well adjusted.